if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 9, and we'll take off around verse 30 through 37. And I'll uh, attempt to make the case for being last, right? Not quite often what we chase after is, hey, how can we come in last place? I doubt your kids play softball or baseball to lose. I doubt you uh, enjoy losing in business or coming in last place in your sales and quarterly figures. But uh, in this case, we're talking about coming in last in a different way. And so I'm going to make the case for being last or trying to strive to be the least of these. And so let's dive our way into Mark chapter 9. You can take your outline, and there's a front and back of blanks to fill in and plenty of space there if there's anything else that hits you in the right way or if you need to take your grocery list or where you're going to go eat uh, lunch afterwards. There's plenty of space for that as well. So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. Let's follow along here. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him, Who is the greatest? And they came to Capernaum uh, when they, in the house, and when they saw him, what, were, what was it that you were discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had been arguing with one another about who is the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking in, in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me." And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, would you encourage our hearts this morning? Teach us and guide us and lead us by your word. As always, we don't want more information or we don't want to write down uh, simple words to put in a blank, but we want our hearts to be transformed more and more into your image. So help us to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's get just a brief bit of context behind the disciples arguing about who would be the greatest, right? So here they are coming down off this great opportunity where Jesus has transfigured before the three. He's come down the mountain to them arguing, and then he has healed this boy that the disciples could not heal. So right after the moment that the disciples failed healing this boy, that seemed the proper time to argue about who's going to be the greatest, right? Seems natural, right? You just lose a ball game, and then you go to the dugout and figure out who one of us is the greatest. It just, it makes a lot of sense here. But that's where we are, that Jesus is teaching and training his disciples just after one of their failures in ministry. And the very next uh, story that we get is them walking along the way and them arguing about who would be the greatest, so let, let's first unpack for a moment. Number one, Jesus' teaching strategy. Well, let's look at Jesus' teaching strategy for just a moment because I, I think it's important that we look at where we've been in Mark chapter 9, uh, 1 through 9 to this point. Now, uh, Jesus begins to teach as they're walking down the wayside that uh, he sees that he, he doesn't want anybody to know. He pulls everybody away and brings in his disciples to train them. So this smaller group is always Jesus' calling to pour into and train these specific men. Yes, Jesus taught the crowds and the multitudes, but the most of his time was spent with this small group, this ragtag group of individuals that to this point have not seemed to get it, right? 
I mean, sometimes we think the disciples who went out on mission and set the whole world upside down with the gospel, right? Thomas going out to India and planting the churches there and all these apostles doing great and mighty things. You would think that Jesus had years and years and years to labor beside them, to preach to them and share with them and love them into ministry. But what happens? I mean, he's really got about three years. And of those three years, you can see that really he's up and down in them getting it. Right, to this point, they don't know what he's talking about, that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and when he's killed after three days, he'll arise. But Jesus' teaching strategy is right there with the few. And I want to zero in on this for just a moment. Because Jesus set the world ablaze in the, in the going and the coming, in the house, teaching the disciples, showing and sharing the good news with twelve. And at times we think and we believe this misnomer that unless we have a a large crowd of people that we're preaching to or teaching to, we can't make a massive kingdom difference. That unless we have this pulpit or unless we're the CEO of a company and we can put our principles in deep into the roots, that we can't have a massive impact. But you see, Jesus' strategy was not to preach from the pulpit to the masses, but to, to be in the homes with the few and preach and share so that they would go out and share the gospel. See, we're here as a body of Christ to to sing together, to be encouraged together, to hear God's word spoken and preached together. But we're called to then go out and take it with us. That you have the opportunities to be around people that I, as the pulpiteer here from the pulpit, would never have the opportunity to reach and touch. And Jesus' strategy for gospel proclamation comes in the few, the discipling of the few. And so moms and dads, you see Jesus intentionally pull away from the crowds, walking on the wayside, coming into the house and sitting down to teach the disciples. And the greatest places of teaching and instruction of your family is in your home. The greatest places of instruction is walking down the wayside, on the way different places. The greatest places of instructions for those of you in businesses and companies is simply in the daily interactions that you have with your people that God has called you to rub shoulders with and elbows with. Your daily opportunities to show and share with people what God has done for you. It was, I don't know, five years ago that I was pastoring this little church in Argo, Alabama, and Lord just put in my heart to reach out to our pastor emeritus, a guy that I deeply love and respected and I thought and still believe is the greatest pastor in America. And so I wanted to come and learn under him. And so the Lord allowed uh, the time for me to come and be an associate pastor under Jay for four years. And those four years were some wonderful years sitting in the pews, writing copious notes of everything Jay would say from the pulpit. And it was all fantastic. I'm going to tell you, sitting in the pulpit, or sitting in the pew, listening to Jay was fantastic, but I'm going to tell you what was even better. It was driving in the car with Jay, listening to him on the phone, loving people so beautifully. It was watching as he ministered to a family walking through grief. It was walking in a store at a different place or going to lunch with him and seeing how he interacted with the waiters and waitresses and shared the gospel with people as he went and as he came back. See, there are things that we could hear preach, but there are things that just needed to happen in the daily interactions of life that spoke volumes and amplified what happened here from the pulpit. And so Sunday school teachers, there are things that you will teach in your Sunday school classes that will be amplified as you have people into your homes. 
as you share the good news with people, see how Jesus' teaching strategy was intentionally to bring 12 into his life and pour his life into them and see them then go forth and make disciples that replicated disciples. And so I'm calling us individually. Not to say I've got to wait until my platform is big enough that I can have a megaphone enough to reach the masses but to recognize that God has given you a platform precisely where you are to train and love and pour your heart right next to who God has called you to. And it may not be flashy like lights and sound and stage. It could be simply over a slice of pizza around your dinner table when the greatest gospel truths can be passed down to the next generation. It can be in the car as you're riding around just sharing and telling what God has done. It can be over a meal at your job or businesses as you've walked through a hard time just simply saying, isn't God good and isn't he faithful? To friends, see, Jesus' teaching strategy with the disciples, even though they seem to fail him time and time again, was simply as they're walking by the wayside, he's retreating from the crowds to intentionally pour into the twelve. He intentionally withdraws into this house to sit down and to teach and to love his disciples. So Jesus' teaching strategy would lead, therefore, into number two, the disciples' erroneous desire. The disciples' erroneous desire. The disciples here, and again, this, this befuddles me a little bit here. The disciples have just had this opportunity to be with this boy and this father who have a, a demon in the child, and, and they failed, right? And they're arguing. And you feel Jesus say, how long have I got to put up with you here? And It's the very next story in which we're given that the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. Does that feel off to you? Does it feel a little bit disconnected that there they failed, there they've fallen short of doing what God had called them to do, and they didn't have enough faith, they didn't pray, whatever it may be. And and here they are on the wayside with Jesus out in front of them, having just said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men to be killed, and then on the third day, he's going to rise. Would your next breath be, who's going to be the greatest? You think it, Peter, can't be you, man. You remember that time? You, he's already said, get behind me, Satan. So probably not you, man. Who's going to be it? And they're starting to talk about, well, remember when you did this? Remember when you did this? Remember, hey, you did that. That was pretty cool. But no, no, no. Remember when I did this? And they're arguing amongst themselves about who would be the greatest. Now, this seems like an odd thing for us in our culture, but for the Jewish culture, there were arguments permeating the culture to say who would be the greatest in the kingdom? Who is going to be great? Whose stuff that they've done here would translate to be the greatest? So it's not that outrageous of a conversation. It just shows how easily the disciples were slipping into the cultural trends of thinking who was going to be the greatest. It was just an easy cultural thing to begin arguing. Let me ask you a question today that I think would reap great benefits for you to spend some time thinking about. In your eyes, what does greatness look like? If you just want to jot that down on the side of your note sheet, what does greatness look like in your eyes? What do you see as becoming great? And I think that question helps us answer so much of our values and how we live our lives. So culturally, we would say that greatness in this world would be wealth, would be power, would be prestige, would be status, and and this would be greatness, right? If we can just achieve these things, then we would be great. Having a memorable legacy where people would say, remember that guy years and years later, right? So what would you consider to be great? 
And so often what we consider to be great are the things that we're going to chase after with our life. If we believe wealth and power and prestige are what makes us great, then we will spend our lives chasing after those things. How easy it is for us as a culture to, or us as Christians to value so deeply what culture values. In 2005, Tom Brady had just won his third Super Bowl. He was on the top there, and he continued to escalate uh, the Super Bowl championships. But in 2005, Tom Brady had won his third Super Bowl championship. In an interview, Tom Brady, who was at the, the GOAT status of Super Bowls and quarterbacks, I mean, the greatest to ever live, had achieved what many would say is the pinnacle of success in the world and in culture. When someone asked him, he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, I think that people would say, hey, man, this is it. I've reached my goal, my dream. Me? I think, goodness, there's got to be more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. That even after winning three Super Bowls on the, the pinnacle of sporting success, the pinnacle of greatness that many would say, still saying this can't be all that's out there. This cannot be what it's all cracked up to be. And how often, even in my life, when I, when I look and say, if I could just get to this point, then all the things would just be okay, that I would, I would feel better. Friends, when we reach that echelon of greatness, it doesn't satisfy because this greatness that we're after is not the greatness that God has called us to. The disciples are fighting in this erroneous desire to be great, and then Jesus does what Jesus so often does. He, he beautifully presents an idea and a teaching point. So let's turn on the back of your outline and look. Let's just learn for a moment, a brief moment, these next few moments, learning from the child, learning from this child. They, you see that when they came home, Jesus in the crowd or in the home, he said, what were you discussing along the way? This pointed question probably got the disciples silent, right? They knew what they were discussing. They knew they had just been called out. And so they're silent. And so Jesus sat down and called the 12, and he said, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. And here he takes a child, calls a child, puts this child on his knee right in the middle of the room. He says, unless you would receive a child like this, Whoever receives one such a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So let's just take a moment and learn from this child that Jesus has used as an object lesson. Matthew 18, verse 4, gives us more clarity to this. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let that soak in for just a moment. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we've seen as we've looked at the book of Philippians how often the permeation of service is filling the pages of Scripture. That we would be servant-hearted, that we would carry the heart of a servant. And here again, Jesus would say, unless you would humble yourself, taking the form of, of a servant, that's what greatness looks like. So let's just go through these points together and let's just see where the Lord takes us. Number letter A, I guess it should be, is we want to be childlike, not childish. All right? There's a difference here. We want to be childlike, not childish. You see that twice now, Jesus has come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. What has he found his disciples doing? Arguing. Right? When ministry is in front of them, what are they doing? Arguing. As they're walking along the way, they're arguing not about 
what they can do to serve or asking Jesus what he meant by this, this three days he's going to rise from the dead. Not asking Jesus and asking the teacher, but arguing who's going to be the greatest. And so we are called, Jesus is calling us not to be childish, but childlike. And I say this with all gentleness and compassion in my heart. Some of us need to grow up. In our marriages, in our homes, we need to grow up and stop being so childish. Not grumbling and whining and complaining about everything. We need to grow up and hear that tension there, not to be childish, but to to take the posture of a child in our faith, in our trust of Jesus. Not to grumble and complain when when people hurt us and harm us. Not to continue bickering amongst ourselves and one another that we so quickly bicker with one another and fight against one another. But with childlike faith and trust. You may remember back in the day of grade school when the teacher would say, hey, let's line up and go to lunch or pee. What did everybody do? Man, you tore out of your seat. You shot to the front of the line, and there were fights happening in the front of the line to figure out who could be the line leader, right? You remember that? Some of you are in it right now. The teacher says, hey, let's go. And everybody, everybody, seats slung to the ground. You're running to the front of the line, and you're fighting each other, right, saying no cut seeds or, you know, what does is, what is, what is scissors do? And somebody says cut, and boom, you got to cut in front of somebody. Right? You remember those days. You remember those days, and We've matured a little bit that when somebody now says, hey, let's go, let's go get lunch, all right, let's go, and somebody starts serving at a buffet or something, and, and everybody's like, somebody please go first, right? We've matured into the point of saying, somebody please go first. And so there should be maturity in the life of the believer to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, that we would keep our childlike faith and trust in Jesus, but we would mature in the depth of our obedience in the depth of our compassion and grace towards other people, in the depth of our love and our care, our peacemaking tendencies, until we would continue to grow in childlike love and faith and grace and compassion and peace, but not in our childish attitudes of division and bickering and fighting amongst ourselves. Number two, or letter B, you would see also to relinquish control. A child relinquishes control. A childlike faith that would humble themselves would relinquish control of the reins. Like a, like a child would, would carefully, lovingly follow a mom or a dad. We humble ourselves and relinquish control. Several years ago, as a, as a high school student here at First Baptist, I got the joy of going on choir tour to Denver, Colorado. It was one of the Great choir tours have got to go on. And we had been ministering and singing and doing that whole thing for several days. And then we got one day to go to a, um, it was a uh, cowboy ranch. Not sure how all that happened, but it did. And so we found ourselves on horses riding around a little ranch and having a big old time. And uh, I'll never forget sitting on this horse and the the ranch hand or whatever came up and just said, hey, this is going to be against every instinct in you but don't hold the reins too tight. He just said, when you hold the reins too tight, bad things happen. Right? And, and so we're sitting there on this horse, walking through the little pasture, and every part of you wants to hold on tight. When you get nervous, what do you want to do? You want to hold on tight to those reins. 
But as you hold on tighter, the horse gets more scared and begins to be a little more skittish. And I am not an equestrian person. I'm just relaying what I learned in 10th grade. So hope I'm right here. But you hold on to the reins, and the tighter you hold, the more jittery the horse becomes. And what do you do? You hold on even tighter to the point that your, your knuckles get, get purple holding on so tight. And so that guy just said, hey, just, just loosely hold on to those reins. You'll be all right. Just loosely hold on to those reins, and you'll be fine. And I am in no way, hear me say very clearly, I'm not equating God to the horse that you're sitting on and you can control. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm reminding us is so often when we walk through difficulties and struggles, when we're walking through the mountaintop, our first instinct is to hold on so tightly to the reins and to the control of our life. Oh, we just want to hold on and say, I'm going to get this horse back on the ship. I'm going to get this thing connected and then I'll let go once I've got myself together. And our, so often we just... We, so tightly hold on that it's so difficult for me so in my life to just say, Lord, I, I trust you. I'm going to relinquish control. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to recognize that you are in control, Lord, and I'm just going to hold these reins so loosely. And it's not easy. As I look back over my life, I see those times and places when I have gripped so tightly. And when the Lord's calling me a different way, I say, no, 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 I'm going. I'm going this way. I'm pulling that. I'm pulling it the way that I want to go. And so like a child, we would relinquish control, which would lead us to let her see trust that faithfully or follows faithfully. Trust that follows faithfully. And Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This past week, I was reminded of uh, a few years ago that we took our kids over to Disney World. And I thought about that process as we were, had this, this greatest time, this greatest week going to Disney. And some of you have had that opportunity to go over to Disney. And I thought about all that it took to take that trip. That for months and months and months, our little family was planning what we were going to do. Brittany and I were staying up late, reading all these blogs, talking to people who had been before, trying to detail and plan how to have the best experience while we were at Disney. We had saved, we'd put aside money for months and months to prepare for this trip. I got a new oil change in the car, new tires on the van, cleaned the thing out. And so we got in the van ready to go. And Brittany had packed uh, for this eight-hour trip. Every 30 minutes, there's a little goodie for the kids to keep them entertained. So every 30 minutes, ring the bell. And kids, here's a little treat so that we're ready to go for this eight hours. We had thought of everything. We got DVD little thing in the car. We, we had snacks galore, drinks in the cooler. We had gassed up the car. We knew the route, the GPS. We knew when we got there where we were going to stay. We knew exactly the park tickets we were going to. We had thought of every conceivable thing for us to go to Disney. And what did our kids have to do? Just open the door to the van and strap themselves in. They had no idea, no idea, the hours and hours and hours that we had spent preparing for this trip. They had no idea all the things that we had done, all the people that we had talked to, how we had orchestrated this trip for them. They had no idea all that we had did. All they had to do, open the door, get in the car. But you know on that eight-hour trip, how often we heard, you know what's coming, how often we heard, are we there yet? Are we there yet? How often we heard, this is miserable. We don't want to be here. Can we go back home? This is, Mom, Dad, this is taking forever. This is terrible. And all the while, we're just puttering right along, handing snacks back, saying, I promise you, it's going to be fine. 
Just trust us. We're going to be all right. Just stay in the van. Stay strapped in. I, I promise you. This is t- I know this is, this is long. This is difficult. I know that this is not easy. But we're going to make it. And friends, I know that for some of us, we feel like we are strapped into this van and it feels like this, we're never going to get there. That we're never going to make it. That this is hard and difficult and painful and it feels like we're never going to make it. The good news of what we see is that Jesus said to the disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will raise up from the dead. And God is doing a thousand things all around us. And he is calling us to faithfully trust and to faithfully follow. And there are times where it is not easy. There are times that we want to get out of the van and just abandon everything because it's so difficult and long-suffering. There's reasons why David in the psalm says, how long, O Lord? How long will this continue? How long will you allow these things? Lord, how long is this going to happen? Are we there yet has been happening since the beginning. Lord, how long is this going to continue? But as a child would humble himself and faithfully trust that God who flung the stars into the skies is leading us in the right way. And on that final day, it will all make sense. When we arrive at the gates of heaven, it will all make sense. And so like a child, we will trust that faithfully follows. And then letter D is receiving the least. Jesus says, and he took a child and put them in the midst of him and taking him into his arms, he said, whoever receives one such a child receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The word receive simply means to care for, show concern for the least of these. This goes back to Jesus' calling to be the servant of all, that we would receive all. And so the question would be, are we going to acquire, acquire, acquire? Are we going to serve, serve, serve? Are we going to seek greatness, greatness, greatness? Are we going to serve, serve, serve? It's our choice. Jesus summed it up when, through the pen of John in John 3.30, he said, He must increase. I must decrease. At the bottom of your outline, you see that just quick summation of today's sermon found in John 3.30. That would be our calling this morning. He must increase. That Jesus, that the Lord would increase in our lives and we would constantly and consistently decrease. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for this day, this hour that we've had to come together and worship. That is our longing. That is our calling, Lord, that you would increase and that we would decrease. Lord, help us step into your calling for our lives. That we would faithfully follow you. That we would trust in your calling and our plan. That you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And Lord, there are times where we want to say, how long? But Lord, give us a childlike obedience and trust. Implant that in our hearts, Lord. But I, I repent when I, I hold on to the reins so tightly. Lord, would you help me to loosen my grip, to be led and walked according to your way and according to your will. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.